All right, we are recording now. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers, and welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people. We hope that in sharing it, it helps build you up. We are the retrospective that's introspective. Uh, you know, man, uh, that was that was that was slick. That was polished. I feel like you imparted some knowledge onto me in an entertaining fashion. Now give me my complimentary chicken and send me out to the murder tree. Oh, I shall. Just, just, just go down the road to the murder tree, <laughs> uh, and there you will find 2003's written and directed Rob Zombie feature. House of a Thousand Corpses. And then once you're done there, you can t- take a journey on down the road and find The Devil's Rejects made in 2005. It's good. We'll workshop that. What? <laughs> we'll workshop the spiel oh, for, no, your, for your uh, your murder maze tour. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Do I keep the accent, though? It depends who you're trying to offend. I mean, I'm not really trying to offend anyone. I'm just trying to be Southern like my chicken. Well, I'd... Put some thought into that, I suppose, is, is what I would encourage you to do. Oh, okay. Well, uh, we'll workshop let me it. think about it. We'll, I'll uh, think about it. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, why don't you uh, pitch these films made by Rob Zombie? Pitch? Uh, jarring. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, uh, Rob Zombie, who at that point had been known primarily for his music, uh, jumped headfirst and aggressively into the world of filmmaking with a really gnarly trashy sort of ugly little movie based on stuff like texas chainsaw massacre uh more though than pastiche i believe the movie uh, is is elevated and made unique by its cast and that is a movie house of a thousand corpses is a movie that introduced a generation of film goers myself included to actors like the great sid haig as captain spaulding who uh, became a sort of a, a niche horror icon in the early 2000s um, and it's a really interesting, ambitious, uh, you can see a filmmaker who's really trying stuff um, and succeeded in making a really ugly, scuzzy little thing that no, the studio, like Universal, didn't want to release it. Right. Eventually got Lionsgate to, to release it. And of course, it wasn't critically beloved at the time, but developed this, this uh, sort of intense, passionate cult following. It's a movie that features a lot of faces that would go on to become a lot more familiar to mass audiences. Uh, people like Rain Wilson, Chris Hardwick, uh, Walton Goggins shows up in this. Uh, and it it does what it sets out to do, a large part of which seems to be upset people. Um, <laughs> but then you get to uh, The Devil's Rejects two years later, where Rob Zombie, I, I think that's the moment where he really comes into his own as a filmmaker. And it's, if possible, uh, even uglier than House of a Thousand Corpses in terms of some of the things that our central figures, the Firefly family, visit upon their victims. Um, but I feel even more so than House of a Thousand Corpses because we get to spend more time with these hideous, monstrous characters, Captain Spaulding, uh, Sherry Moon Zombie as Baby Firefly, and Bill Mosley, another genre staple, as... Otis B. Driftwood, 
Uh, they are so they're they're so horrifically monstrous, but they are so, in my opinion, engaging in these roles. And you don't you can't root for them because they're horrible, monstrous people. Right. But it's so they are so compellingly watchable, and the chemistry between these monsters, I genuinely enjoy. I think more than anything, it's the cast that makes these movies worth checking out. I do think the filmmaking in both is pretty strong, and I do think if you are a horror fan and you have a bit of a a threshold for fucked up shit, these movies absolutely deliver on that front as well. Okay. As a long pitch, but that's very on brand for me. Right. Yes, that's a Lex Michael pitch spectacular. In my in my view, succinct means under three hours. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, in my in my view, succinct means uh, something that was in the sea and it sank. Succinct. <laughs> yep. That's okay. how that joke works. All right. Um, so this is my first time seeing both of these movies. Um, as everyone knows, I. I'm not a big horror person. Um, I once described myself as a, a punk baby bitch boy. That's true. Um, so uh, they these I've heard I had heard of them, but I had never seen them. Um, I can say that I, as an adult, did not enjoy them. <laughs> um, uh, if, here's here's uh, also something else that's worth uh, mentioning. Okay, so. This was a movie that I, when I was probably 16, both of these movies, saw a lot. Okay. This was a movie, uh, my my good uh, longtime friend and friend of the show, J.Q. Salazar, like we, we've been buddies since high school. Yeah. This is a movie that we we watched extensively uh, for, for whatever reason. There's a scene that comes uh, around the midpoint of Devil's Rejects that we will talk about when we drop the spoiler wall. Okay. But it's pr- probably the ugliest thing that happens in either movie. And I grabbed my phone and I shot him a text like, dude, we watched this when we were 16. Yeah. Like a lot. And he's like, bro, I know. <laughs> um, but- I mean, there's a lot of boobs. So I imagine as a 16 year old, you're like, yeah, let's get to them boobs pods. But it wasn't that. It was, it was pretty much... The same thing that it it is for me now, which is, oh, that's fucked up. (laughs) Okay. But also, we were so very, very entertained by uh, Sid Haig in particular. Gotcha. These... Uh, and Sid Haig is an actor. We just we just lost uh, Sid Haig. Um, And he's one of several reasons it felt like now is the right time to talk about uh, House of a Thousand Corpses and the Devil's Rejects. I figure maybe I I should point out why, why it is appropriate before we get too far into the weeds. A couple of reasons. One, we are, uh, as you're listening to this, as we're recording this, rather, uh, we are uh, at the tail end of Murder Clown Summer. Uh, this summer we had It Chapter 2, Murder Clown. We uh-huh. had Joker, Murder Clown. Right. And uh, the day that this episode drops, we will see the release of Three from Hell, Rob Zombie's latest film, and the third in what is now a trilogy uh, featuring these characters, the Devil's Rejects, the Firefly family. Yeah. Including, of course, Captain Spaulding, a murder clown. Right. Additionally, yes, of course, we we did just lose Sid Haig, which is a huge bummer because he's he's an actor that, as I just mentioned, we were introduced to in House of a Thousand Corpses, and we became very big fans of him. I can't speak for any of my friends, more than I am fans, uh, uh, more than I am a fan of either one of these movies, though I am. 
uh, I'm a big Sid Haig guy. Um, he's uh, he's an actor with a really interesting career. If you go back far enough, he did a ton of TV in the 60s. Like he did an episode of Star Trek. He did an episode of Batman um, and then went on to a feature career. And in addition to appearing in movies like Point Blank and CC and Company, uh, made six, I believe, six movies with Pam Greer. Uh, he was in Coffee. He was in Foxy Brown. He was in uh, Big Dollhouse, The Big Bird Cage, Black Mama, White Mama, and one more that I can't remember off the top okay, of my head. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but uh, he shows up in Jackie Brown, a movie that we discussed uh, not too long ago on this show as a judge. Uh, Pam Greer's character goes before a judge. Tarantino created that little part for Sid Haig as a nod to their frequent collaborations with each other. Okay. Um, I'm a big fan of that dude, and I love he's always popping up in really scuzzy, trashy, schlocky exploitation movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he's the perfect guy to anchor movies like this, which are nothing if not trashy, schlocky, exploitation affair. Right. And I mean that as a compliment. I, I like that shit, me personally. Yeah. Um, but... He, I think, is is phenomenal. Uh, Bill Mosley is Otis, another genre staple. Uh, he, I, most people, I think, if you go back far enough, know him from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two, where he plays Chop Top. Yeah. Uh, fun story: He apparently got cast in that movie. Was was uh, discovered sort of by Toby Hooper because he produced, like back in the day, a fan film parody of the first Texas Chainsaw called Texas Chainsaw Manicure if I recall correctly. Okay. And so that put him on Toby Hooper's radar. He gets cast in Texas Chainsaw 2, and he's been a genre staple ever since. Um, they they really, I mean, they really elevate the thing, in my opinion. But it's, right. it starts, it all revolves, but it all revolves, in my mind, around Sid Haig as Captain Spaulding, d- despite the fact that he's not really in all that much of House of a Thousand Corpses. Right. Um, but he, like, when I think about Rob Zombie's movies, I see his like big smiling clown head with the the tall hat that he's yeah. wearing and like the ad spots and stuff. I mean, he's one of the first main characters that you meet, um, and he is such a big personality that's playing off of these four teenagers that are just kind of like hanging out, right? You know, so like he's the most larger than life character in the whole movie, even though like House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, because everyone else like has their bit, but he's very much like the showman of the. He's like the MC, right? Yeah. So I get it. Um, also, uh, interesting fact about the genesis of the movie: Rob Zombie got the idea because he was designing a maze for Halloween Horror Nights. Yeah. At one point, because they were doing something in conjunction with his, I think it was uh, his album Hellbilly Deluxe. Okay. Um, which I want to say, I think that was his first solo album. Uh. You got you guys listening probably know who Rob Zombie is. Roast prominence with White Zombies launched a solo music career. Now he does movies and stuff. Right, he still does music, but yeah. I think I think just as many people now know him for his films as his music. I think so. I wonder how he feels about that. I'm sure he's excited about it. I, I right? Wouldn't it be it'd be nice to be known for for one thing, let alone two things? Right. I mean, he's. It seems like based on the research I've done on this movie and like, uh like his career, like he's done a bunch of different things. Like it seems like music is just one of his passions, but he loves horror. And like he, he, um, like he wanted to direct, he wrote some things like he, he, I think he also tried to write, uh, 
one of the crow movies which yeah, ended that's up right like so he's he's got a lot of passions so i imagine he's like yeah just say my name baby rob zombie yep yep that's how he says it yep while he's while he's digging through the ditches and burning through the witches hell yeah yeah so uh yeah so he was uh, uh designing a maze for them in in conjunction with uh one of his albums and that's where the idea sort of popped into his head right um and you can see like you know you talk about he's got that passion he's got that energy and you can see it in sort of uh the, the his backstory as a filmmaker yeah i feel like you you see that all over these two movies um, in a way that, you know, obviously he went on from this to doing uh, his Halloween movies, which, for better or worse, you're now jumping onto this sort of big franchise IP, which right. means now Halloween 2, they did let him get pretty weird. And that's why of the two, that is the one I, I prefer. But you can only take that so far, like that that youthful vigor. What's the expression? Piss and vinegar. Uh, <laughs> don't give me that face. That's a real expression. Yep, totally. Um, you, you can't be that that youthfully exuberant and full of piss and vinegar like you once were when you're when you're sort of being eaten by this big IP thing. Right. And like he talks about his experience making those movies and how it's pretty rough. Uh, but I think that that energy, that hunger, um, that ambition is very much on display in these movies. Yeah. Um, now, I, I do also like that uh, this this year, I think, to tie into the release of Three from Hell, there was another House of a Thousand Corpses uh, maze at Halloween Horror Nights. So it's all come full circle. Yeah. Hashtag MCU. It's all connected. Oh, yeah. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> so I really quick just want to acknowledge uh, on uh, House of a Thousand Corpses a couple other cast members. Okay. Um, so uh, obviously Sherry Moon, Sherry Moon Zombie as Baby Firefly, uh, Rob Zombie's wife, who's been in every one of his films, uh, uh, the, the three Rejects movies, both Halloweens, Lords of Salem and 31. Yeah, you've got Karen Black as Mother Firefly. Karen Black had a huge career uh, going back to stuff like she was in uh, Easy Rider. She was in Five Easy Pieces with Nicholson and stuff. Um, she did not come back for Devil's Rejects. And so the role of Mother Firefly was taken over by Leslie Easterbrook, who I think her her biggest thing was uh, she's in the Police Academy movies. OK. And oh, boy, is she just going for it in yeah. Devil's Rejects, just taking big, big, big swings. Um <laughs> And then you've got uh, Tom Tolles, you've got William Forsyth, who's uh, sort of the baddie of uh, Devil's Rejects. Yeah. Uh, Sheriff John Quincy Wydell. And then, of course, we have Ken Forey, uh, obviously another genre staple going all the way back to movies like the original Dawn of the Dead as Wolf J. Flywheel, a.k.a. Charlie Altamont. Okay. And I wanted to make sure that I got the name right because as becomes a significant plot point, significant-ish plot point in yeah. the Devil's Rejects, all of these names of these characters are aliases taken from Marx Brothers movies. Mm-hmm. Which is a really cute little, like, thing. Yes. Yeah. Th that we that we pause Devil's Rejects uh, cold for a scene to hit <laughs> on the head really hard. But right. it's a fun scene. It, actually, that scene, uh, this, is, this is not really... We'll, we'll lower, lower the spoiler wall in a second. Okay. But there's, there's this scene where uh, the sheriff is talking to the local movie critic to see if they can get more information about, you know, the, these are Marx Brothers names. Can you get us a list of other possible aliases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And they get into this, this uh, argument that escalates really sharply about Elvis Presley and Groucho Marx, and it feels like reading Twitter. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 
But uh, that's also how people behave in re- the real. Like you be at a bar and you're like, "Oh man, Groucho Marx's so cool," and then someone's like, "Blah blah blah," but Elvis died soon after. It's more important. Elvis is, and you're like, "All right, Yoda, cool." <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so, yeah, I think this is a good time to drop down the spoiler wall. Um, so, if you haven't seen either House of a Thousand Corpses or Devil's Rejects, and you're like, oh boy, I don't want to get spoiled, because um, a lot happens in both of these movies. Yes. Um, then this is your good. This this is your chance to jump off. Um, we'll be here when you come back. You can stream these on uh, Amazon Prime. There is also physical media available, um, and it's all over, not all over the internet, but like, you know, if you do Apple TV or if you do uh, Google Google Play, all of these places have the movies, so uh, find it wherever you please. Uh, also, speaking of finding things where you please, you can also find us on many different platforms, and you know what helps us get to the top of the charts on those platforms? What? Leaving a rating and review. Oh. oh, yeah, brah. All you gotta do is go on, let's say, iTunes. And if you feel so inclined, you could also leave a review and let us know, like, hey, this is what I like about your show. Um, and we will read it here on the show. So uh, that's a little, little sweet, sweet shout out you get if you take the time to leave us some love. That's a pretty sweet incentive. That is. Um, so, I mean, we want to thank you guys for joining us every week, um, or, or at least listening to the movies that, or TV shows or whatever that you like and being like, I want to hear these guys' opinions about that thing. Right. Um, we appreciate it because without you guys, there's no show. We're just, we're just hanging out in a room yelling at each other. Right. Exactly. And you know, I don't want to do it unless someone's listening. Uh, if if no one's listening, I just sit quietly and giggle to myself in a corner. It's go, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like that. It's like a weird guttural sound. It like actually induces nausea if you listen to it for too long. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you for giving me an outlet uh, to speak my mind. Uh, but that is it. I think that's giving you guys enough time to turn this off. If you uh don't want to be spoiled so we will come back with all the spoilers right after this message can harry potter cast a spell on black widow's heart would the doctor and niles crane write a prescription for love do cthulhu and godzilla have compatible genitals these are the questions you should be ashamed for asking but if you want answers listen to ships in the night it's a fanfic podcast where we put two fictional characters into a relationship and figure out what would happen if they bumped uglies ships in the night listen every tuesday but listen quietly it's super not safe for work all right, so the spoiler wall is down. Um, so I feel like we really have to kind of go through what what happened in these, like not even sequentially, just like get get people familiar with what's going down. Yes. So uh, very very broadly, um, yes. Now uh, that we've we've dropped the spoiler wall. I guess first I do want to talk about how the two movies, even though Devil's Rejects is of course a sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, that that follows it fairly directly. They there's a lot of big changes from one movie to the next in terms of uh, specific reference points and and uh, influences. Okay. So the first movie very much um, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre inspired, very much uh, some like Hills Have Eyes uh, stuff kind of sprinkled in there and, and whatnot. Okay. Um, but a lot right away, um, and they, they hit it really hard in both movies, a lot of uh, Manson stuff. A lot of Charlie Manson. Like Otis uh, is essentially like feels sort of crafted in the image of Charles Manson, right? Especially in the second movie. In the first movie, he's like they they gave him this uh, it's like an albino right. look, and they really change the aesthetic of his character for the second movie. Yeah, um, and he very much looks Charlie Manson. In the second movie, uh, there's a scene where Otis brutally murders two men and he quotes uh tex watson what what he's alleged to have said the night of the tape murders which is i am the devil and i'm here to do the devil's work mm. um so that's one of many many explicit and direct references to charles manson and the manson family right obviously there's uh the fireflies being a big murderous clan but there's also in the in the first movie i mean right away we open with uh chris hardwick and rain wilson in the car and Chris Hardwick is looking at pictures of, I think it's Squeaky, Squeaky from one of the Manson girls talking okay. about how she's super attractive. Um, but also we get, once we introduce the character of Baby, we get these uh, sort of inter interstitial little tiny fragments of her talking to the camera, yeah. like in, in kind of crappy homemade documentary footage. And she's quoting... Uh, this Manson documentary, this really great documentary, I think it's from 73, it's just called Manson. And it's all like the actual family members essentially talking to camera, talking to the interviewers about what being part of that was like, you right. know? Um, and then you also get, you know, a, a little bit of time with uh, Vincent Bugliosi, who uh, was the prosecuting attorney in in that uh, trial, and also literally wrote the book on the Manson murders in Helter Skelter. Right. But... The uh, if someone needs killing, you kill them. That is uh, taken directly from that documentary. Um, as is a couple of things in uh, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, taken direct the song that when you first meet the Manson girls in that movie, the song that they're singing is directly out of that same documentary. And also, Tex Watson is a character in that film at the end of the movie, says the same the thing the, the I'm the devil, I'm here to do the devil's work. Got it, got it, got so, it. Stylistically, from one movie to the next, there are a lot of really big shifts. So whereas the first movie, it's a lot more Texas Chainsaw, a lot more Hills Have Eyes, there's still some of that like Texas Chainsaw energy in The Devil's Rejects. But in addition to that, Rob Zombie has cited movies like Bonnie and Clyde, The Wild Bunch, Badlands uh, as stylistic influences as well. And as I mentioned, I do really feel, I really feel like Devil's Rejects is where he did really come into his own as a filmmaker, um, both aesthetically, technically, and also in terms of how far he was willing to take some of the the truly ugly aspects of these characters and their world. So right. you said we should talk about what happens in these in these movies, and I agree with you. I guess the way I want to begin is is by framing it thusly. You having just seen these movies for the very first time in your adulthood, uh-huh, made it explicit early in this very program, yes, that they they did not uh, they did not make you feel good things. Um, I I think technically my my words were I did not like them. Um, <laughs> I think that this because not, these are a lot of overlap, right? But like I think that I had to specify it because 
I don't think that the movie was made to make me feel good things. It was not. It was made for me to feel unsettled and uncomfortable. Yes. Um, and so I get, I got the, here's my perspective. Yes. Like I got the, the gist of like what its intent was. So house of a thousand corpses. I got that. Like, yes, this is definitely someone's first foray into filmmaking and it feels like you can feel him in the, the editing bay being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want this and I want that. And I want these, these are like what I feel is cool. And so like, you definitely get the feeling of his specific aesthetic. Yes. Um, it feels like House of a Thousand Corpses looks like Rob Zombie's music sounds. Right. Yeah. Um, and then in Devil's Rejects, they did, uh, I guess they, the most interesting thing for me that they did is they tried, they took this like the, the antagonists of the first movie and then they were like, JK, they're protagonists now. Yes. Um, and so you get that kind of role reversal and that like you can tell that he really liked these characters and wanted them to be the main focal point of the movie. Like I had read that when he was initially creating House of a Thousand Corpses, he uh, like the, the studio kept pushing back being like, we should focus a little bit more on the teenagers. And he's like, no one gives a shit about the teenagers. Right. And you can tell that like in in uh devil's rejects like that he took that to its full uh ethos or whatever whatever the word is yes um, um and and you can feel that in the movie like we we are introduced to the fireflies for the most part through the eyes of our our central teenage characters right but the longer they spend in the movie uh, and the longer they spend around the fireflies the more it feels like the firefly clan is just sort of seeping in and cover essentially covering them completely until you realize you get to the end of the movie these kids are being dispatched but it almost feels like an afterthought right you know what i mean like they're essentially there just so these freakishly demonically evil family members can prey on them yeah and you can tell like more and more and more uh, as you get closer to the end of the movie that focal point is shifting it's like yeah he keeps being told to focus on these kids but he's got that wandering eye and he can't help but prioritize the weird shit right and so i thought it was a really interesting choice like it's in one of my notes because you had mentioned the aesthetic of uh, Otis in the first one compared to the second one yes where they very much like softened up his look and made him more like human like whereas in the first one he could have basically just been a demon that came <laughs> up from the depths of hell because yes. he has those like super red and, and yellow eyes the long gray hair and his like skin is is death white yes or gr- death gray or whatever Right. Um, and in Rejects, he looks like Charlie Manson. Yeah, he just looks like a, a dude. Yeah. Um, and so that shift from them being like, if yes, if you were taking it from the the teenager's perspective, like they definitely would look gross and, and mangled and 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 uh, like devilish. Yes. Whereas like now it's from their perspective. You start the film from their uh, from you start the film with them and like they very they go out of their way to be like look at their family they're a family like the mom is like I've always loved you baby um, and I'm like all right I get it they're softening they're like trying to make us 
feel and they're trying to make them more human yes. in our eyes, even though they do monstrous things. Yes, uh, very much so. And all of the characters, as a result, feel a lot more grounded because you actually do get to we start with them and we see how how they are when they're not putting on an act to fuck with people. Right. Like in the first movie, Captain Spaulding is all, whenever you see him, he's in some version of showman mode. Right. In a way that he he cannot be in Devil's Rejects. Otis, you obviously mentioned, and uh, Baby as well. Uh, in House of a Thousand Corpses, Baby is... Uh, I don't think there's a moment in the movie when she's not performing, essentially, where she's doing her high-pitched laugh and saying all the really weird shit. Yeah. When you get to Devil's Rejects and she's only really talking to her family members, she drops that mm-hmm. for the most part and puts it back on when they're fucking with the people at the motel. Right. But so you get to see, yeah, a far more ground, I guess you could say human, although describing these characters as human feels a little inappropriate, but you get to see a far more grounded version of the characters versus the far more cartoonish uh, uh, performative versions from House of a Thousand Corpses. Right. Um, and so I would say that, like, I I think that it's, it's I can see their merit, like, all that to say that, like, I can see like why this became a cult hit. And I also feel like, so w- sometimes when, when I make you watch anime, you, <laughs> you uh, describe it. it. I mean, that's, Sorry, that's no. how it works. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Go, go, go. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I, you, sometimes you will describe it as feeling like you have, like there's a, a certain layer of context that you're missing. Okay. Um, and I think that like, I have that, missing context for like there are people who really love horror like you're one of your, yourself being included and they're like horror cons and people love all of the associated tropes and i feel like they're in reading a lot of the reviews like a lot of people feel like they connect with rob zombie's fandom of the horror genre like you you understand that he made this movie because he loves the genre yes. and he made his version of what he loved Right. And so there are all these like little nods and little pieces that like you're like, all right, I get the context of the still sh- the still frames because it was something that he had experienced in this movie. And then like the murder family I got because we talked about um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre on this show. Yes. And I was like, yes, I understand the context of that. Um, and I've also seen Tucker and Dale versus evil. <laughs> um, so I get that there's like a, a murder hillbilly trope that um, can be subverted at times. Yes. Um, And so I totally understood that. And I was like, all right, I bet that there are additional layers of this movie that like I even, not even I, because I don't have that context because I'm a baby bitch boy, (laughs) but um, that I am missing. And I wonder what that is like from the perspective of someone who is a fan. Right. Well, for example, I I would say, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the Manson stuff, for example, is a layer that it seems like you're missing. Yeah. Um, Yes, I am. I only know Manson's by name. I don't know much about the like details of the story. I got to show you this documentary, the one I I mentioned before that I do think is from 73. That's just called Manson because it's profoundly unsettling. But I didn't realize like I read um, I read Helter Skelter in high school I think it was a freshman or a sophomore in high school when I read it okay so I've known the Charlie Manson stuff a lot of the details for a long time and when this year once upon a time in Hollywood came out 
in which the Manson stuff is very, it's a massive part of the, the backdrop of the story. Sharon Tate's a main character. Yeah. I discovered to my surprise how many people didn't know anything about it. I mean, yeah, I feel like I had in high school, I had a friend who was very much like, oh man, Charlie Manson, yamma, 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 yamma. Um, and you hear it referenced in popular culture. Yeah. Um, but un- I feel like unless you are looking for it, it's not necessarily something that like people go in depth about. Right. I mean, unless you were one of those people in high school where you were like, serial killers are neat. Right. Um, Which I yes. <laughs> I mean, and a lot of people are like that. Like, um, there are swaths of other podcasts that are about specifically just about like murders or like serial killers and things of that sort. Like there is, uh, and there are television shows completely devoted to, to that kind of thing. And so like, yeah, I, I totally get it. Mm. Um, I mean, I wasn't one of those people because, but you, you recognize that it one. is a, right. But you recognize it is a thing. Yeah. No, I, I totally get it. Um, and so I, that's another thing that like, as you were talking about it earlier in this episode where you're like, here are the things that are references to like the Mansons. I was like, Hmm, I wonder, like I will have to look into, uh, that story and, and like what happened in order to like, just feel the feel and understand the extra bits of context. It's a gnarly tale. Let me tell you. And it's not a pleasant story. And we're, we're to imagine, I mean, no, we're talking like, uh, um, Think about the levels of unpleasantness that these movies reach. Okay. That, but real. All right. Um, yes. I mean, there are a lot of horrible, horrible things that happen in this world that, uh, you know, like fiction doesn't even begin to uh, touch. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. Um, which is a sad thing in and of itself. Um, which is, I think, w- another reason why I don't gravitate towards horror is I'm like, the world's bad. I don't need this. But I think that's why I and I think a lot of other people do gravitate towards it because yeah. it's a it's there's a catharsis. Right. You know what I mean? And like you get to expunge the the darker, sometimes angrier, not, not necessarily more violent, but certainly the, the more aggressive parts of your psyche and, and those, you know, trying to find a way to vent those feelings yeah. in a way that ultimately is consequence free. Right. And I think it, it, it helps because we all, we all have, we all have like on a primal level, those, those elements to our ourselves. Yeah. And we all find different ways, hopefully pr- constructive ways of channeling those. And I, I just feel like, yeah, like watching horror movies is a really, it's a cathartic experience. And yeah. that's, and also, there's there's a thin line between horror and comedy as well because there's build up build up build up and release right so you get that yeah. moment of catharsis but also it can hit it can hit that same part of your brain where like you know so much of my sense of humor is extremity right so i am the person who will will see something and just start like something that's truly horrific as long as i know it's fake as long as i know it's pretend the more extreme they make it, the more I find myself cackling at it. Right. So, and it's, it ties back into that same thing, I think, where it's like you can uh, sort of exercise some of your own personal, call them, call them demons, or at least negative feelings or yeah. anger or, or whatever, like you, shaking your fist at the entire world. It's a way to just channel all of that into an experience that is consequence-free and, and fun. And right. I think it can help 
certain people, I think myself included, not compartmentalize necessarily, but process through real horror. Right. And most horror is essentially, a lot of it is allegory. A lot of it, it like takes this real thing and puts it in an extreme setting. And so like, it's also a way for us as a, as a society to kind of process a lot of these overarching feelings that we have. Like, like we've talked about how it, different horror genres, they, they changed based on the, the national fears that are going on. Like a lot of the Romero stuff was based on a lot of the consumerism stuff and like vampires are based on like a lot of um, like sexual repression, sexual repression fears that we had in society, like things of that sort. Right. Um, so like, I totally get it. Like on a, on a personal and societal level that there are ways of, uh, of us dealing with the horrors that are actually in the world. Right. And also I think that's part of why when a lot of people are, are younger, again, myself included, they gravitate towards the stories of real life serial killers because there is something so compelling in obviously a very dark disturbing way so compelling about what what is it in a person that would make them do something like that Mm -hmm. because some of the and and two you talk about like layers uh contextual layers that maybe you are missing when you watch these movies um if you were a kid who delved into all of these notorious serial killers you you get to the sequence in House of a Thousand Corpses where they're going through Captain Spaulding's sort of murder maze ride mm-hmm. and you have, you know, references to like Albert Fish and Ed Gein. You know, if you grew up reading stories about these real life serial killers, it feels like it's like, oh, I got you're like Captain America. It's like I understood that reference. And stuff. Right. And so you get that little that little kick, like the tiny little reward center in your brain lights up because it's like, oh, I, I understood that reference. Right. Same thing with like all of the the Manson stuff and same thing as well with all of the 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 movies that he is pulling from, um, again, both in terms of content and aesthetics. Right. So it's full of, yes, little references, little in-jokes and then things, tiny things that are as silly as um, uh, when the character Tiny, played by uh, the late uh, Matthew McGorry, is uh, bringing one of the captive teens some cereal the label on the box says agatha crispies mm-hmm. there's nothing not to love about that <laughs> i mean that is a cute i do love puns yeah see yeah. like how is this not your favorite movie now um i think that <laughs> you said you're trying to answer like that's a real question <laughs> i know um i mean because i imagine like people at home are also like um and I think that, like, what? <laughs> that's how people inquire about things Can I you? like and dislike All at right. home. I need you to translate this for me. People at home are like, yo, it's a cult classic. Why you no like? Oh, uh, no. Hey, let's pause, though. I can think of several reasons why one <laughs> may not necessarily take to these movies, especially if you, as as you are, first coming to these movies as an adult. I think when you're a kid... And you don't, even if you're a fairly savvy kid that's aware of how shitty and dark the world can be. Yeah. You don't have as much real world context for gruesome violence like the violence depicted in these movies. Right. So it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like it's connected to reality in any way. It feels like you're watching a cartoon. Yeah. Now, I'm only speaking for myself and my friends growing up, which maybe that just says something about us, but... 
you don't have that perspective. Right. So you know it's horrifying, but you don't have it. You don't connect it to real world horror. Yeah. The same way. So I could imagine if I came to this now for the first time, never having seen it, I feel like the scene in. So this I referenced before we dropped the spoiler wall, the scene in Devil's Rejects at the motel. Yes. Where they force Priscilla Barnes to strip and Otis molests her with a gun. Yeah. I don't know that I, I feel like I would be very, very repelled by not just repulsed, but actively repelled by that scene now. Yes. And even, even now knowing it was coming, being familiar with the scene, having seen this movie, however many times I told you, I picked my phone up and I texted, uh, Jay yeah. and I said, bro, I'm at this part of the movie. I'm like, we watched this when we were 16 a lot. And mm-hmm. he's just like, yeah, I, I know. You guys were like, guns are cool. Everybody I love but, guns. But but not, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I feel like it was a combination of being too young to have that kind of perspective. Right. And I it was never about guns are cool, but it was about, it's the same, it's the same thing that I was, I was sort of trying to get at before, which is it, there was something really cathartic about it, especially if you were a sort of young, angry kid. Yeah. Um, it's just a way to vent essentially, right. but without that lack of perspective, it's a, it's a cartoon. You don't know right. I mean? even, even when it's that ugly, you don't, you know what I mean? Like when you're, when you're a kid early in high school, you really, I mean, hopefully if you do have that perspective, then like sh- shit, you got to get out of your home or something, but you don't, you don't have anything that, that makes it feel that real right. and that immediate. So you can internalize it differently. Now as an adult, I watch that same scene and I, feel as un- uh, uncomfortable maybe as as you did watching that scene but i ha- am so familiar with the movie that i i already found my in you know what right. i mean like it doesn't the movie's not sh- aggressively shaking me off because i've so internalized the rest of it already yeah i think especially kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying i think taking it in as a younger person you're just like especially because i feel like when you're younger there's a lot of like bad good bad uh morality and so you're like bad guy is doing bad thing and so it's about that guy and what he's doing but as an adult you understand that like things have consequences and, and so like a lot of this movie um both movies i guess i kept thinking about the the kind of uh, trauma that these people would have to deal with if they had survived <laughs> right, if the they encounter. Had right. And so like that moment... <laughs> I think Rain Wilson would be like, I'm a fish now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, yeah. So I think when you're younger, it's about the guy and him doing bad. Whereas like when you're older, it's about the effect it's going to have on the people who are being tormented. Yeah. And so like you have that empathy and that I think also is what makes it more unsettling is because you know that like how much this would be affecting this character in this situation right. and you you have to you can't help but put yourself in her shoes and feel as how violating that moment is. Right. Um and so and then also there's the moment when the uh Otis character comes Back to the hotel wearing the younger wife's husband's face. Yeah, he's got a thing about cutting faces, which is very 
Texas Chainsaw, obviously. Right. But yes, he takes uh there's a there's a side story because they're going to hole up at a motel because their their compound gets raided at the beginning of the movie. And they stumble upon this folksy family band called Banjo and Sullivan, right. and they proceed to take them captive and torture and murder them. Um yes, uh Otis takes the men out to the to the desert to help him dig up some guns that he buried a long time ago. Murders them both, of course, because that's what he do. Right. And cuts off the dude's face and, yes, wears it back just just because he thinks it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he, like, gives it to her and, ch- and like, ch- starts, like, using it as a puppet. <laughs> yep. And, like, again, <laughs> like... I feel like, yes, if I were younger, I'd be like, man, that guy is bad. Just like, oh, my uh, God. What a, what a bad guy. Yeah. But now I'm like, man, like that's her husband's face. Yeah. Um, and she's already been in, in dire straits leading up to this moment. So to know that like her husband's dead, they are maybe going to kill her. But like even if she survives, like she has so much that she's going to have to like work through. Oh, yeah. Um. And then, like, we get the scene where they essentially put her husband's face on her as a mask, and they tie her up, and she's, like, gagged, so she can't say why the, she's in the room. The maid finds her. Right. Yeah. Um, and it just becomes a whole thing. And and then she ends up running out into the road and getting splattered by a truck. Like, they don't even kill her. Right. Um, I mean, which, you ha- like, the truck was probably the best outcome that she could have it was faster than whatever else might have happened right certainly um so like i can't i couldn't i couldn't help but think about just like all the shit that like these people must be feeling imagine the moment where because that same girl uh almost gets away like she gets out of the the bathroom window i believe and she's she's trucking and baby's chasing after her and imagine that moment where you see a person yeah. And you run towards the person like, oh, my God, this person's going to help me. And like, if nothing else, they're a witness. And like, I'll be safe. And like, we can get help and stuff. Right. And then from behind you, you hear, daddy, grab that bitch. And you get grabbed and headbutted into unconsciousness. Yeah. That moment. Imagine. Imagine living <laughs> that moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it it felt like a, a nod to the end of the first one. So House of a Thousand Corpses ends with um, the last girl getting away um like she makes it through the dr satan uh maze of horrors yes um she she makes it to the street also shout out to dr satan who's just this weird animatronic puppet thing yeah they, i love <laughs> love it don't understand it but i love it i it felt like um she or it felt like uh they the implication was dr satan was so old and that like the the machinery was keeping him alive to keep doing his surgeries yeah um, something like that or something like like <laughs> like he had a whole like i guess they kept dumping people below ground and he's like i'm gonna keep doing my stuff oh yeah right surgery it, today right no no clarity as to what he's doing what the purpose of these experiments are i like to think he's just having fun I mean, it seems like it. Like, people are his playthings. Right. And it's like that kid who would, like, take off the arms of one 
uh, one action figure and then put it into another one and yeah. like, make these abominations. It's probably like that. I imagine, yes. But and like, at that point, too, the movie has has become such a, a fever dream. You yes. know, I, and I feel like we're so in the perspective of that character, at, uh, the the final girl at that point. Right. That, yeah, it's just like it's entirely possible that 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 puppet, Dr. Satan, is just what she sees in her mind's eye and stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm a fan of puppets. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. So you're a big fan of when when uh, Otis used that guy's head as a face as a puppet? Uh, Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That tracks. That's it puppets and it's really fucked up. That's why I like the Dark Crystal series that Netflix just did. Puppets and it's fucked up. Nice. Yeah. Um so can we talk about um o- or not Otis. Uh can we talk about the sheriff in The Devil's Rejects? Yes, uh John Quincy Wydell as depicted by William Forsythe, also making some big choices in this movie. Yes. Um because because since the new protagonists of the series are the uh, are the Firefly family, Firefly yep. clan, whatever you want to call them, mm. um, they had to make this guy as bonkers as possible. Just even somehow all in certain ways, even more despicable. Right. Um, and so like he's and he starts out like, OK, like he starts out as just like your your traditional cop character who's like we're gonna get him we're gonna we're gonna do the thing and get justice and he is uh he is of course uh his character is the brother of the tom tolls character from the first movie who mother firefly shoots to death yeah and so he's he's on a revenge quest basically um and like at first it seems like he's trying to do everything by the book and he's like doing an actual investigation and trying to get them all in jail. But like by the midpoint, after he has a, a, a dream about his brother being like, you got to kill him. You got to kill him. Good. Um, he essentially becomes the, 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 the full fledged villain of the movie. Yes. Um, like he, he sends in a couple like, I guess they're assassins. Uh, the uh, the unholy hunters. two, yes. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page and Danny Trejo. Yes. Yeah. What 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 is their jo- are are they assassins? Pretty like, much, they're just hired guns, basically mercenaries. It seems like they he pays them to track down the fireflies and kill anybody in the way, and just create a scenario in which Wydell can kill them himself. Right. Um, and not for nothing, of course, there's nothing uh, heroic about our protagonist. Our protagonists are villainous monsters. But you end up, if not rooting for them, then certainly hoping that they escape his clutches because if if something's going to befall them and end their reign of terror, you don't want it to be this asshole. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like because he was on a revenge quest... You you want your like anti-hero Punisher type character to to prevail in some way, or like maybe they both die at the same time. Like that, I think would have been the best case scenario where he's like he has his whole speech being like, "Me and my family, we were devil killers." Um, and so I would have liked if he's like, "And I'm gonna go down in the fire with you," and he like they all just died together. Instead, he actually becomes. Like the the tormentor, like he is 
torturing them. Yeah, he's got them tied to chairs. He's stapling photos of victims into their bodies. He literally drives nails through Otis's hands and shit. Yeah. And you again, you can't feel sorry for the Fireflies because they had at least that much coming to them. Right. But you end up as an audience member watching that sequence going like, shit, I kind of hope they make it out of this. Nah. Not like this, man. Not like this. Nah, just I, like that. No, the ending I prefer for them, and again, I I shouldn't, because it's like you shouldn't you shouldn't root for these guys to have any kind of good ending that glorifies them in any way. Right. But if you're gonna commit to these characters telling the story this way, I greatly prefer uh that they get to go out the way they do. I don't know. I liked I I really wanted uh because it was a very prolonged session of him torturing them like after the first few uh photos he stapled they like cut away and do some other shit for a little bit and i wanted to come back and them just to be full like completely covered in uh photos stapled to them (laughs) like that i think because it 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 has a dexter feel to it where he's like look at you look what you did um gonna get some street justice uh and so i think that them dying that way at the hands of this dude who had a personal vendetta and like felt wrong is like a poetic justice kind of thing. Whereas like them being like, we're the good guys and we're going to get away. Oh yeah. Um, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of, uh, see, and I, I, I genuinely love the way this movie ends. Like I, I re- like I, re- it's a couple of things. Like I love, uh, and and he uh, Rob Zombie cited uh, Bonnie and Clyde as one influence, and that absolutely tracks. Cause right, it's, it's the outlaws that that go down. It's a very romantic idea that go down in a hail of gunfire and stuff. Right. But also, and this brings me to something else. Uh, I really uh, like the soundtrack to Devil's Rejects quite a bit. It, uh, as the kids say, slaps. Uh, <laughs> and in the, I love, for example, the opening title sequence of the movie is set to um, Midnight Rider by uh uh Allman Brothers. Uh-huh. Uh and uh it's it's these 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 little snippets of uh baby and Otis escaping and like murdering a woman and taking her car and stuff, but it's the juxtaposition of these horrible images with that song. Um it it creates it creates an energy and an effect that I'm a really big fan of. And so yeah. you get to the end of the movie and once they escape from the the like uh, Charlie's uh, like it's a whorehouse essentially. Yeah. Once they escape from Wydell, they they're kind of riding off into the sunset, and there's no dialogue for the rest of the movie. But we get this big finale set to Freebird by Leonard Skinner. Yeah. And they use the entire just about the entire song, and they're on the highway. You know. Uh, 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 baby and uh, Captain Spaulding are in the back seat. Had just have very much worse for the wear. Uh, Spaulding's been shot. Baby's been stapled a whole bunch. Um, Otis driving. They see you know Otis sees uh, in front of the car just a wall of heavily armed police officers. Yeah, and all of this is happening non verbally, and a lot of it's happening in slow mo. And Otis realizes, well, one way or another, we're not getting out of this. And so he makes it clear: wakes up, baby, wakes up, Spaulding. There's a moment, and I love. If I haven't made it clear already, I absolutely love everything that Sid Haig is doing in both of these movies. Yeah, Sid Haig has my single favorite performance moment in either one of these movies, and also, if I'm being totally honest, the longer I think about it, 
one of my more favored performance moments from an actor in a movie. And it's in this sequence. And it's when Otis wakes them up and starts passing weapons back. Yeah. He hands a, I think it's a a revolver to a baby and hands a shotgun back to Captain Spaulding. Yeah. And it's all, it's in slow-mo and it's all completely nonverbal. The way Sid Haig plays this moment where Spaulding kind of looks, sees what's happening and non-verbally conveys, all right, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> and then hoists himself up. I love that fucking moment so very, very much. And it's a little thing. Yeah. But oh, I think that moment's so good. That's acting. <laughs> nice. Um, I mean, yes, I totally, I I, I feel like I, I totally get that. And like uh, one of my notes about the ending was I, I really got the cleverness of baby ending up being the final girl. Um, there's that moment where she's running and she gets shot in the leg. So she falls over and it's like that classic final girl moment where she's like being choked and someone eventually saves her. Right. Well, it's also uh mirrors the scene from the first movie where she is chasing down one of the girls who's yeah. dre- and right down to the yelling that like, run rabbit type shit right um and now yes tables tables have turned and it is now she on the on the receiving end of the the torture and the murderous intentions but then of course tiny shows up saves the day right um yeah i i was wondering when he was gonna show up like at the beginning they're like where's tiny and you see him for a little bit because he's dragging a woman through the forest and uh in that moment side note all i could think is how much dirt must be in that woman's asshole. Um, Cause yeah. like she's naked and it's just like pure dragging. You can see like the leaves and dirt piling up underneath her butt. Well, she's dead. So she's all right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she's not all right. She's she, actually very much the opposite of all right, but she doesn't notice that happening is my no, point. But like the actress has to, I would assume that, that the actor, like they w- would pad her up in some way. Maybe like they put like a little butt plug in there and like, Something or just a little like a little flap with like uh, xanthan gum. They just kind of stick it on. (laughs) Okay. And stuff like a makeup application. Right. But it's just a little shield. Got it. Okay. To keep all of her all of her stuff safe. Right. Because, yeah, I would imagine like she also got like a yeast infection or something like it's it's had to be rough. Yeah. And she still fares better than most of the characters in this movie. (laughs) Um, But yeah. So like that that ending. I think where where Tiny comes in and saves the day, and then he's like, "It's time for me to die," and he like goes back into the fire. Um, that was the the movie really wanted me to feel like it was a moment of triumph. <laughs> I mean, I suppose I know I, I very clearly the way we've built the character of of Wydell up to that point. It's very clearly a moment of like, "Yeah, fuck that asshole." <laughs> I, I don't know if I could call it triumph necessarily, but but yes, they definitely you're you're definitely supposed to be uh happier than not that right. this dude got his. Right. Um so yeah, I totally so that said, I also really want to talk about the the dynamic of that family. Yes. Like once we have um Captain Spaulding, uh Otis and Baby together and how everyone a hundred percent gets on uh, Otis's nerves. Spalding is is very much the like, uh, like 
he's a dad, but he's not like he feels like he's on the same level as his kids now that they're adults. Well, yeah, and he and uh, he and Baby have this great rapport, and they clearly both like fucking with Otis. Of course, and I I believe if I if I recall my my lore correctly, Otis was adopted into the family. Okay, so he's like the half brother, and then you don't. It's not clear what Spaulding's relationship to the family is in House of a Thousand Corpses. It's just, you know, the, the reveal at the end is that clearly he's in league with them somehow. Right. Right away in this movie, we establish that he's Baby's father. Yeah. Um, but yes, I love I love their dynamic uh, and I love how much they like fucking with Otis. One of my favorite moments in the movie is when they first show up and meet Charlie. Uh uh, Spalding introduces reintroduces Otis to him like hey you remember Happy Boy and Charlie's like you still an asshole and he just gives him the finger and yeah. shit I like that okay that's good stuff also yeah. uh, Charlie was a member of the family at one point yeah that's why he's got the he's got that other alias that's uh, Mark's brother's name right and they were partners it sounds like Spalding aka Cutter uh, the two of them were partners back in the day I think in the in the brothel if i'm not mistaken i believe so yeah um so that is interesting to think about like i i would have loved if uh sid haig was still with us uh i would love to have seen a prequel where they use like the digital de-aging technology and it's a uh, uh cutter and charlie Alt- altamont movie i mean they could still make that movie just re- like cast yeah, you'd have to recast They'd solo stuff. it and basically. the framing device is ken forey uh, even though he's dead, his character's dead. The right. frame because we can bring the actor back. Right. Plus, not for nothing, uh, the Fireflies are back in Three from Hell, and it looked pretty definitively final for them in this movie as well. Right. So we bring him back somehow, and the framing device is him telling this. It's like the Young Indiana Jones series, and it's just him telling the stories, and then the bulk of the the thing is flashbacks with different actors. Right. Of this course. is good. Why aren't they making this? Um, why don't you pitch it to Rob Zombie? All right. You he's, know? he's definitely listening. Every week. You know, he's he's just like, sometimes he'll just tweet directly at me being like, love what you're doing. Yeah. He really saws off those jagged itch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's <laughs> how it does. It. Uh, also, speaking of Charlie, uh, he's very much the Lando of this movie. Mm-hmm. Very much so, right? And and that's clearly intentional. They his first scene, they reference Star Wars when one of his like top earning prostitute talks about how all these weird dudes want to have sex with Princess Leia. Yeah, it's very much. It's clearly intentional that he is the the Lando of this story. Insofar as he's the black friend that they go to <laughs> for shelter and and comfort and uh he ends up selling them out to the insidious evil authority right um the that actress who is his top earning uh prostitute is the voice of buttercup in the powerpuff girls um, really yeah uh, i forget the actress's name but yeah i was like she sounds so familiar and she said so many things. Yeah. I, wow. That's wild. I didn't make that connection. Yeah. Um, I also, I felt bad that all, that all of his prostitutes got murdered as well. Yeah. I was, that was a real bummer. That's, that was ultimately the unholy two's function in this story was to kill prostitutes. Yeah. I didn't like it. I mean, like morally, I didn't like it because they were just bystanders. They like, they didn't have to kill them. Uh, better or worse than what they do to the band at the motel? 
um, what the fireflies move. do. Yeah. It it uh, is on a, <laughs> on the relative scale. It is better in that. Um, I think that. Yes, I guess on a relative scale, <laughs> it's better in that. Like the the sadistic the sadism involved with what they did in the hotel is more fucked up and it would leave lasting scars. Whereas like it, you could, if you want to try to justify the actions, which you don't, you don't need to cause they're bad. Um, but it's more that they were collateral damages and kill is going to kill. You know what I'm well, saying? I feel like it's probably better, probably better to be killed than to be tortured and killed. Right. Yeah. Um, so if, if that's the scale we're going with, that's where it lies. <laughs> I'm really glad we sussed this out. I feel better. <laughs> um, but do you have any final thoughts on these two movies? Um, something that springs to mind is, uh, yeah, so I mentioned that in my friend group, these movies got a lot of play. Yeah. But what got just as much play as the movies themselves are the DVD menus on House of a Thousand Corpses. Okay. You can go, if you don't want to shell out the couple of bucks to get the disc, you go on a YouTube and you can find these menus. But he had Sid Haig and also uh, Bill Mosley and Cherry Moon Zombie uh, do bits and stuff in character. So the main menu is Sid Haig as Captain Spaulding in the full makeup and outfit and stuff. Um, basically just hanging out, talking shit, looking at like uh, uh, classified ads to find dates and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and we we would watch that. Just over and over, and we would quote the menu to each other. Yeah, it's a it's a hoot, sir. I I encourage <laughs> you, I encourage you to uh, go check that out. Um, because he he just gets mad and berates you for not making a selection, right? But he also it's it's just more Sid Haig's Captain Spaulding, and as as I think I've made clear, I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of him in that role. He yeah. he is what makes these movies for me ultimately right um and i i felt like now's now's the time right like with the new movie coming out and of course we just having lost him very very recently felt like you know what it's a good time to sort of shout out the dude and his work and also i hope that if you've never seen house of a thousand corpses or if you're coming to it for the first time in years whether or not you're the hugest fan of the movie itself i think sid haig had a really interesting career and I like the idea that, much like I did, somebody could watch this movie, dig what he's doing with that character, and then go check out some of his earlier work. Yeah. Well, uh, most of which is also really kind of scuzzy, trashy, exploitation-y type stuff. So your mileage may vary. Right. That's my, that's my shit. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I... I uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. Sid Hay. No. Like, no, I, I, I'm going to miss that dude popping up in things. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when the technology comes about... Peter Cushing, that dude. Hell yeah. You know, just have someone who looks like him uh, do a similar performance, and they'll just put his face on there. Just paste it on there. Hell yeah. Indeed. <laughs> In, indeed. Um, but what do you guys think? You sitting at home or in your car or at work... If you've come this far, I assume that you've seen both movies. What were your thoughts? Did you enjoy them? Did you uh, not enjoy them? Did you enjoy one or the other? Uh, what were your favorite parts? Did you look at the DVD menu? Let us know. You can do so at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. 
on Twitter. Um, but if you really love this stuff and you want to talk to Lex about Sid Haig, you can hit him up. Uh, where can they hit, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. Nice. And if you want to talk to me about, um, how, about morals and, um, you know, not horror stuff because I don't because I'm, I'm I'm not a horror person. No, I'm weak. I'm no, weak. you don't know the legend so of Doctor Satan. So weak. Uh, if you are also weak like me, you can hit me up at <laughs> Tari J T U R I J A Y on Instagram and Twitter, um, and we can talk about rainbows and butterflies and and lollipops. Um, but yeah, uh, this again has been part of our ongoing October spooking out uh, branding pending. It's, it's really, it's the hand waving that, that makes that for me, but I don't know how to convey that, uh, in, in audio. Only. Right. I mean, I feel like they can hear the hand waving cause it's so ethereal and ghost-like. Um, so yes, uh, I think so next week I will be bringing in the audio book version of Alien Out of the Shadows. Okay. Um, so that is a audible exclusive so we can find that there. Um, it, and it's alien like alien alien. Oh like yeah. The film franchise alien. Yes. It takes place between alien and aliens. I see, which yeah. means, in all likelihood, my boy David will not be making an appearance. Nope, um, I hate it. But I Ash hate will. it now. Oh, all right, yeah, um, guy, and it is technically a, canon. That guy's a dick. Yes, that guy made a lot of problems for a lot of folks. Why? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, if you're unfamiliar, it explores uh, what happened between the first two movies. Um, it also uh, goes into what happened at the mining colony that. Uh, that disappeared that you hear about in the second movie on a uh, LV four twenty six. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's what we're going to be covering next week. So if you have a chance, we'll be tweeting out the link so that you can listen yourself uh, and you have all the context so we can talk about it. Um, so thank you again for listening to Missing Out. Um, we hope that you had fun talking to your friends about us talking to <laughs> about this movies. All right, it's coming off the rails quick. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and we will see you next week. Uh, until then, this has been the retrospective that's introspective. And now you have a new perspective. Tour's over. Take your chicken and get the fuck out. Hell yeah. You gonna fuck them chickens? <laughs> <laughs>